I would say that um, you have been the heroic Gaisley Bible Fellowship that you always have been in a day of meetings like this. Heroic meaning that you've endured until the end. Remember the Bible says that he that endures till the end, the same shall be saved. But um, this is a little different at enduring, isn't it, than what the Bible's talking about. So I'm going to try and um, not go beyond 6 o'clock. I'm going to try. But I promised you I would tell you a little mission story about Susan. Susan Hill was her name. And she was a consultant for a computer consulting firm. And along the way, Heartland Publications developed some computer problems. We tried to transition from one computer accounting system to another, and the numbers got fumbled and juggled around, and, and uh, the problem just got worse. Finally, after our own efforts at, at fixing it and then realizing that we could not do it, we decided to uh, call an expensive firm. They're all expensive, you understand. We didn't just choose it because it was expensive. We tried to find the, a, a firm that knew the system that we were using and how to work the data out properly. And this firm sent Susan Hill at $40 an hour, you can understand that's quite a challenge, an expensive challenge. And we knew that it would take a couple of months for her to figure it out. She came in as a consultant and she worked with us and um, helped us not only with our accounting but also with some other administrative issues. And uh, in the course of her first day there, she wanted to have a smoke. Well, Heartland is a smoke-free campus. You can't just go outside and smoke. You have to go off campus to smoke, you see. And we told her that. Oh, she said, I want to quit anyway. Right. We said, well, we'll send you up to the wellness center. Heartland has a center for people with problems, health problems. And we run them through this program, a lifestyle program, you see, and things start to change. So we sent her up there for a hydrotherapy treatment. Gave her uh, a Russian steam bath, I think it was, and then a nice massage, one of the students. And she was so thrilled by that. She just loved that student, and, and uh, she was, she was uh, thrilled by the possibility of quitting smoking. And you know something? In, in a matter of a couple of weeks, she'd completely quit smoking cold turkey. But of course, that's only the beginning of the story, and I'm abbreviating it. She was staying in our wellness center as, uh, as part of where she was staying, because she had to commute uh, two hours from her home in Lynchburg up to Hartland. 
and then she would commute back at the end of the week. She'd come up on Monday afternoon and spend Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Thursday night go home. She had two nights in a wellness center every week. And she would eat breakfast, lunch, and supper with the students in the cafeteria. And it wasn't long before she sensed something about these students. And of course, they sensed something about her, too. She had her earrings on, and she had her various uh, uh, jewelry and, and, and makeup, and, and her, her clothes were, were uh, in some ways rather immodest. And uh, so the students figured this out. By the way, she's about 50 years old. And they ministered to her. They were so kind and so gentle. And they, you know, just really, you know, opened up to her and talked to her and share with her, you know, about their love for the Lord. She couldn't help but notice that there was something different about these students. Well, in fact, all of Heartland, she realized, there was something different about this. She said to us one day, she said, this is not a normal business. <laughs> and of course we understood what she was trying to say. She said, there's something different about this place. She says, I, I asked her, I said, do you like it here? Oh yes, she says, I love it here. Well at $40 an hour, we, <laughs> we didn't know how long we could keep her around. <laughs> so finally one day she came to us, she said to Dr. Standish, she said, Dr. Standish, she says, I have... I have quit the consulting firm and I'm willing to consult with you on a direct basis and the cost is only $20 an hour. Well we said praise the Lord, that's fine. By this time incidentally she had already begun to kneel down and pray with the Heartland Publications workers every morning before work because they have their little testimony and worship time together before they open their shop and before they get to work in the warehouse. And so she began to pray with them. And uh, towards the uh, end of the project, within a couple of months, she came to Dr. Standish again and she said, Dr. Standish, she says, I know that I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. But she says, and I know that we're coming down to the end of this project. But isn't there some way that, 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 that I could keep working for Heartland? <laughs> and she says, I know I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, so you can't hire me. I know that. And Dr. Stanley said, well, I'll talk to my team. So he came to the administrative committee. We talked about it for a while. And, and pretty soon... Uh, we said to her, listen, you give us a proposal to continue consulting. And, a few days, and, and in the process, he explained to her that we probably couldn't keep her on at $20 an hour. <laughs> Sooner or later, a few days later anyway, she came back with a proposal just about equal to what we would, it would cost us to support a staff family, a small staff family. Well, we talked about it some more, and then we accepted her offer. And so she's been consulting there for almost a year. After about six months' time, Dr. Stanish and she were talking, and uh, he said, how would you like to study the Bible? Oh, she said, I'd love that. <laughs> now, you need to understand her background. She was raised a Mormon. 
but left that church. You know, it's not satisfying. Mormonism is a whole lot of spiritualism, and it's not really... It may be attractive to some, but in the end, when you really get down, if you're really sincere and the Holy Spirit has access to your life, you know, you can't stay a Mormon. Her husband is an ancestral Catholic. You know what I mean by that? Generation upon generation upon generation were Roman Catholic. He's an ex-military uh, lieutenant. He flies helicopters in Vietnam. <coughs> Bombing raids, you know, and, and missions for, for, um, for troops to get them around Vietnam. Well, of course, the war is over now, and he's retired, as you can understand from that. But he was flying helicopters down in Louisiana, down in the oil fields for private companies, private firms. He would go down there at one end of the month and stay down in Louisiana all month long, come back for a weekend, and then go back flying in Louisiana again. And one day I asked Susan, I said, um, how about, how do you like working here at Harlan? Oh, she says, I love this place. And I said, well, how does your husband feel about you working here? Oh, Scott, that's his name. She says, oh, Scott, he's so happy for me to work here. He, she said that I'm so, hap so ha much happier than I used to be, and I'm so much easier to live with. In fact, she says he's moved home. He quit his job down there flying helicopters, and he's come back home. <laughs> I said, well, praise the Lord. She's a very matter-of-fact person, so she doesn't, you know, get uh, excited, maybe as enthusiastic uh, on the face as I do. But <laughs> and as I listened to this, and I for months I never saw this man Scott. He always stayed at home. He never came to Heartland. He was a little nervous about Heartland, but he liked what was happening to his wife. So he and Dr. she and Doctor Stanish they started Bible studies together. And uh, after the first Bible lesson, and they were using the Everlasting Gospel Bible Study Series published by Heartland College students and faculty, and, and uh, you can get a copy of this from uh, Heartland Publications, but they were, uh, the second week she came into his office and she said, Dr. Standish, she said, could we put these Bible studies aside? She said, I would like you to teach me about the Sabbath and the state of the dead. She wants the heavy artillery right on the front end. <laughs> and Dr. Stanish, of course, said, all right, we'll do that. So they set the Bible studies aside, and he began to share with her about the Sabbath. Well, the, second week, the third week after the first study on the Sabbath, she came back and said, Dr. Stanish, she says, I've told three people about the Sabbath. She said, there was a Jewish man that lives next door. He came over to talk to me and my husband about some civic project, I don't know, Boy Scouts or some, something. And she just let right into him. She said, do you know, we have something in common. <laughs> he said, what is that? She said, the Sabbath. And she said, three hours later, we were still talking about the Sabbath. We had a lot more to talk about. Now, I want you to notice something. She's saying, we have something in common. Not you and Heartland. We have something in common. Even back then, she was already adopting in her heart the Sabbath, you see. Uh, then she said, I also told my 
friend that she had a girlfriend that she told it to. And she said, the third person I told it to is my sister. Now, her sister lives out west somewhere. But her sister told her cousin, who lives in Richmond, which is just down the street from us. Just keep that and shelve that for a minute. We'll come back to that. And then in the Bible study was another woman who'd been through the Bible studies before and had not accepted the Sabbath. And so Dr. Stanish had invited her to come back in and study some more. <laughs> and while they were studying, she said, well, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. And I don't understand, you know, how you get this and what's the seventh day, you know, da-da-da-da, you know. And Susan just came on like a light. She said, well, look right here in this passage in Scripture. And look at this passage in Scripture. And look at this. And this is what this means. And that's what that means. Dr. Stanley says, all I had to do was sit and listen. <laughs> I didn't have to give any Bible study that day. But then, um, let me think. What happened next? Well, uh, her cousin called her up one day. She says, I've got to tell you about these Adventists, this cult you're studying with. You've got to understand this. I'm coming up to see you. Fine, said Susan. And when you come, we'll go shopping for some Heartland dresses. <laughs> you know, she would come in with her, her professional pantsuits and so on, and sometimes they weren't as modest as they ought to be, I guess. And so she'd been paying attention to see all the other ladies. And uh, we follow the counsel, you see, in Deuteronomy, that there is to be a distinction between the dress of men and the dress of women. So anyway, uh, she, her cousin came over to see her and tell her about the Adventists. And uh, as soon as she walked in the door, her cousin said, Susan, what is a heartland dress? So she said, well, come on. And she went into the closet and pulled out a few, you know, things that she already had. And uh, her cousin said, that's not a Heartland dress. That's a Bible dress. She says, that's what our church, conservative Baptist, that's what our church teaches us that women should wear. What else do the Adventists teach? <laughs> Already her cousin is breaking down the barriers, you see, to Adventism. So Susan began to share with her about the Sabbath and about other things. And after it was over, her cousin left. She said, well, I guess the Adventists aren't such a cult after all. <laughs> well, Susan was needed in some other departments to consult on some management issues and some finance issues. And uh, she came over to the college to talk to me about Heartland College. We have a few challenges to work through, as any institution will from time to time. And I said, Susan, if you're going to consult in the college, you need to understand a little about our philosophy, because we have a unique philosophy. I said, here's two books to read. Actually, I gave her four books. I gave her Education, imagine that, which is a powerful book, for soul, a soul-winning book, that, that book, Education and counsels to parents, teachers, and students, fundamentals of Christian education, and counsels in education. And two weeks later, she brought them back, having read two of them, education and uh, counsels to parents, teachers. She says, that's it. She says, that's good stuff. 
She said, if you follow that, you've got a school. I can see why your school is so unique and why you have such students that you have. Well, she went back to uh, my wife in Last Generation magazine to study, uh, to help them with some of their financing projects. My wife said, listen, Susan, if you're, going to if you're going to consult in the Last Generation magazine office, then you need to understand our product. So she handed her a stack of, you got it, Last Generation magazine. She took them home, put them on the living room table, started reading them. Well, her husband's home all day long. You know, he just putters around here and there. And a few weeks later, she came back and she said, my husband is devouring those last generation magazines. She says he got his Bible off the shelf, dusted it off, and started opening the, and looking at every scripture text as he was reading along in the magazine. And she said he especially likes the special issue on prophecy. Well, um, she said, in fact, he shares that prophecy magazine with his auto mechanic and his dentist and this and that and the other person. And, she's, and she says, his is all dog-eared and all beat up now. It's just, he, he, but he hangs on to it. He won't let it go. Just to somebody to read for a while, then he'd go back and get it back. What a missionary. He's already a literature missionary. He's not even an Adventist. She said, well, listen, Susan, you better take him some more copies. And she handed him about five or six more copies of the prophecy issue <laughs> so he could leave them with his contacts. Well, Scott started taking Bible studies. But he and Susan, they did not want to take Bible studies together because they both had their own questions and their own relationship to this whole issue. And so now Dr. Stanish has two meetings each week with the Hills. One with Scott and one with Susan. Both of them, incidentally, have accepted the Sabbath. Both of them have accepted the state of the dead. Both of them have accepted many, many things about the Adventist faith, and they're well on their way to baptism. They both have asked for baptism, but we've told them there's still more they need to learn before they, and accept before they're ready for baptism. Well, Susan, by the way, got, someone gave her a copy of Desire of Ages. She gave a testimony once in staff meeting. She says, I've read that book, she says, in one night, no, I guess, uh, no, it wasn't staff meeting. Anyway, someplace, she gave a, a, meeting, uh, a testimony. She stayed up one night, read till one o'clock in the morning. She says, that book is so good. I don't think she quite finished it, but because she, before she finished it, someone gave her great controversy. <laughs> or great controversy, as you say. And so she read that book. And that's, that has influenced her powerfully. She says, now I understand why Heartland has a mission. And I understand why you're different than other institutions and other businesses. She says, you have a purpose. There's a mission here. And she says, I like this mission. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> one of these days we expect that she's going to be baptized. We don't know exactly how long that's going to be, but you need to pray for Susan and for Scott. It's a wonderful experience going on right now, even while we speak. All this is taking place at Heartland.
By the way, she and her husband moved to Culpeper, which is just up the street from us. Uh, they got rid of their place in Lynchburg, moved up to Culpeper so they could be closer, where they can, don't have to commute and it can be right there. In fact, Scott has started to do a little volunteering on his own. He, uh, he runs errands for us and different projects he helps us with. And um, I, I believe that God is moving on people. He's making them come to a realization of the time in which we live. He's giving them opportunities and He's using His people. And He'll use you wherever you are in the contact. If you're open and you're willing to share, you'll find opportunities to share the truth and you'll find people who are willing and anxious to know the truth of God. So Susan is, uh, is a little unfolding gem just now and her husband. So maybe next time I come to Gaisley, we'll be able to tell you the end of the story or the rest of the story. And uh, that's a little mission emphasis for you today. I hope that you gain something from it. All of us can be involved in some kind of literature work, some kind of missionary work. Uh, we're using the Last Generation magazine. We have a new, a new missionary project that you can get involved in called Silent Sam. Silent Sam is an honor box for literature. It keeps it out of the weather, and yet it's always there, silently witnessing in the street, wherever you can get them placed. And people can take those literature out of them and uh, read them and then contact you. Anybody who needs or wants to get involved with this, let me know, and I'll be happy to give you some information about Silent Sam. And uh, it's taking off like wildfire back in America, and uh, I suspect that it could go well in many countries, maybe even Britain. But whatever you do, get involved in some kind of work for the Master. Now is the time. You can't work when, when uh, uh, the night cometh. Jesus said the night cometh when no man can work. Now tonight I want to take up a very important topic concerning, concerning the times in which we live. Just last week, on Monday, we had the Washington Post publish this ad. Are you Y2K ready? Now as I've talked to people here and there, once I talked to a flight attendant on a plane, she, I said, what are you think about Y2K. She says, ah, is that really going to be all that important? I, and I told her a few more things. She said, oh, well, maybe, maybe it is pretty important. Uh, another, I, I went to see my uh, optometrist for my eyes, you know, getting my checkup. And uh, I asked her, I said, how are you getting on for Y2K? Are you, oh, we were talking about the contact lens, because I wear contacts, and uh, I said, are the contact lens companies, are they doing their work by computers? Do they make those contact lenses by computers? I knew they did, of course. She says, yeah, they do. I said, are they Y2K ready? She says, never thought of it. I said, how are you going to get contact lenses if they're not Y2K ready? And then we started talking, you know, that just opened up a whole flood of conversation. <laughs> You know, there's lots of ways you can raise this one. And it's a wonderful excuse to get talking about the Lord and get talking about the end of the world 
and about the crisis that's coming on planet Earth and how we need to get our lives ready and our hearts ready. It's a great excuse because it's very real. And if you didn't know the Lord, you could be very scared by it. That week when this ad came out was the October 19 to 23. It was called National Y2K Action Week. And this ad was published by the President's Council for Y2K. And these organizations urge small and medium-sized businesses to prepare for the year 2000. Then it lists a huge list of businesses that are involved in this. It's put out by the Small Business Association of America. They're warning people to get ready. Your life is going to be changed by the year 2000. Life will change as we know it. And there's nothing that any human being can do but except to get ready as best you can for what is coming. But what is coming? What is the Y2K problem? How many of you here have never heard of the Y2K problem? Right, okay, one or two. Well, fortunately, at least most of us know a little bit about what that is. And for the sake of those who don't, Y2K has to do with the computer bug. Years ago, when they started using these computers or making these computers, especially the big computers, they did not program them to accommodate the year 2000. They accommodated them in such a way so that when the computer saw 68, they knew it meant 1968. So it'd print out on your printer or whatever in 1968, but inside the computer was only knowing those two numbers, the 6 and the 8. Or 78 or 88 or 98 or whatever it happens to be. The problem is that when the computers roll over to, the, to zero, 00, it's going to read it as 1900. Already a hundred-year-old lady got noticed that she needs to start attending kindergarten pretty soon. Oh yeah, already, and that's maybe humorous, but you think about what can happen. If your credit card company isn't Y2K ready, your credit card might not work. If your electric company is not ready for Y2K, your electricity might go off. Now, the year 2000 begins on a thir uh, Friday night and on a Sabbath. January 1 is Sabbath. Now, remember, it is wintertime January 1, isn't it? If you do not have electricity, what will you do? Well, those who have coal-fired heaters, that's very, that's very good. Those who have gas-fired heaters, all right, then you might have more time until you can't buy gas. See, what happens if the distribution systems are interrupted for coal and gas into the big cities? You see, everything in this world these days, at least in the Western world, is computer-dependent or computer-related. And some things will go on and some things will not. You see, they have, you might ask, well, don't they have enough computer technicians to fix these problems? Well, it's not quite that simple. 
Yes, there are technicians working on it, and in some countries there is much more progress on this than others. In, Amer in America, there is a lot of progress, but there's still no way that in America we can be 100% ready. Europe is a basket case. There is no way that Germany, for example, can be ready. Britain is ahead of Germany, apparently. But you think of other countries in Europe, Spain, Italy, France, Switzerland, Eastern Europe. How many of these countries will be ready for Y2K? None of them will be ready, not even Britain. Um, the problem is going to uh, arise probably in, a, in a strange, in different ways. Um, for example, uh, when this problem got started, they were using very large computers with limited memory space. That's why they cut down the cost of memory by uh, abbreviating the year. But the problem is that those old COBOL computers have had computer programs stacked on top of computer program, on top of computer program, on top of computer program. Now the COBOL programmers, for the most part, have retired. And they've got to bring them out of retirement and pay them high salaries just to help them solve these problems. But it, rem it, it is thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of computer text they have to check, change the, num change the computer information, and then test it and retest it and test it again. It's a long, involved process. And if you fix the top program, and then the next program, and the next, there's still other programs beneath it. It is not an easy problem to solve, and it will not go away. And the time marches on, I think it's just under 15 months now. The time marches on, day by day. This is not something that we can delay. Every minute that goes by, we get closer to midnight, the year 2000. Many big banks are not going to be ready. Although some of them are working very hard on it. You think what happens to the economic system of a country that can't do its banking. In America, we have a lot of, most business and residence is on electric heat, strictly electric heat. If you can't get electricity and you're on electric heat, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to freeze. My optometrist said she's all electric. I said, well, Go down to the home building supply and buy yourself a kerosene heater. <laughs> At least you'll have some way to help you get through and get, get plenty of kerosene or propane heater and get plenty of propane, whatever it happens to be. Because it's going to be wintertime. And in our country, and probably in your country as well, all the electrical grids are interlocked and interlaced. If they run out of electricity somewhere, they pull it from somewhere else. See? And if it, if it happens that they have to pull it in several directions at once, it could overload the system and there'll be brownouts and blackouts. The airline traffic control systems will not be ready. We know that already. They will not. They cannot. It's too, there's too much to fix. 
I won't be coming to Britain January over the year, January 1. I guarantee you that much. <laughs> Don't invite me to preach that weekend. That would probably be the only time I'll refuse. <laughs> and maybe a few weeks afterwards. Um, the Defense Department in, in America will not be ready. We have the most sophisticated, technologically up-to-date military in the world in America. But it's entirely computer-dependent, and it will not be ready. China has a military that's little better than World War II. They're not entirely dependent upon computers. Can you imagine the balance of power then? Think about that. That's a little unnerving. By the way, Britain has pretty high-tech equipment too, I understand, their military. What happens if you can't defend yourselves? Well, we can go on about the problem. But I just want to give you an idea. And it, it, for those who do not know the Lord, this is a scary proposition. So in our country, we have a lot of people moving to the country and positioning themselves so they're off the grid. You know what I mean? The electrical grid. And, the, and they're becoming independent. Very intelligent move, mind you. Of course, they're just doing what comes natural when you use your neurons. <laughs> the right thing best they can. Here's a report that from Gary North. Have you, any of you heard of Gary North? Yeah, okay. He's now a famous, uh, uh, he's not just famous for the Iran-Contra scandal, he is also famous now for his um, pontifications about what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> he's very involved in, in various things. Um, he says, I've been writing for over a year on this with all the skill I have. I simply cannot get it across to all of you or even to most of you. I am never at a loss for words, but I am at a loss for persuasion. I have been unable to persuade the vast majority of my readers after almost two years that if the division of labor collapses, we will lose millions of lives. By the way, the division of labor, uh, the United States government, is not going to be ready. Lose millions of lives. Joe Boyvin, who was the Y2K director for Canada's Imperial Bank and Commerce until he quit, estimates that a billion people will die in the year 2000. Now that might be an exaggeration, but when you think about it, we're talking about something very serious. He limits this discussion to the third world. Just talking about third world. I think we could lose half a billion in the urban west. Urban west. Unthinkable? All right. Show me how any large city will survive if the power goes off for 60 days. All railroad deliveries of grain and coal stop. All gasoline station pumps shut down. And there are no banks. Go on. I'm serious. Sit down and outline a scenario that will keep an urban population alive without mainframe computers. We thought these computers were going to be our slaves, but now we're their slaves. The army, 
There are 120 U.S. cities that the government has targeted as vulnerable to cyberware. You know what that is? Cyber, I'm sorry, cyber warfare. You know what that is? That's warfare through cyberspace or internet or computer. There are 1.2, I'm sorry, 1.4 million people in the entire U.S. military. Few have any training for riot control and food delivery. The government cannot provide such training without creating panic. The military is dependent on the civilian communication system. How will 1.4 million untrained military personnel, including the Navy, police a destitute population of 60 million urban residents, not counting in the suburbs? That's 11,666 people per city. But the large cities will get the lion's share. What about where you live? He's talking about uh, Americans in their large cities and small cities. The bands of arsonists and rioters are loose in your city. What will your police do? I'll tell you, they'll stay home if they know that they're not being paid. And if the banks go down, they will not be paid. I know what you're thinking. They can't just let this happen, and so on. He, he goes on and on for a while about this. And while these things may be extreme scenarios, they're nevertheless, to a certain extent, very real. You think about London. What happens when London's mainframe computers stop working or don't deliver the correct information? What do you think is going to happen to the city? There's go it's going to be a standstill. And there are going to be people who are quite angry about not having their typical daily living not the way it should be. You know, when we get interrupted and we get... Um, our lifestyle gets disrupted, what, what normally happens? People get upset. And when they can't get food and they can't get water, because if you live on city water systems, they're run by computers too. And they're run by some pretty old computers too. If you can't get the proper supplies that you need, what do you think people are going to do? They're going to go crazy. They're going to become angry, and there will be severe crime and violence. We're promised this, by the way, in inspiration. So it should not surprise Seventh-day Adventists. Neither should it scare us, unless we're not following God's will. You can see why God gave us counsel a long time ago to live in the country. Now, some people think, well, this is just extremism. This is just, um, this is just um, talk that is uh, sensational. But I am not quoting to you from people who are out in the lunatic fringe. I'm talking about people in the know. It wasn't long ago that on the news radio in um, America, there was a discussion by several of the senators on the Y2K problem for the government. They rated the various departments of government, and most of them got a C, A, B, C, D, you know, the U.S. grading system. <laughs> a, B, C, D. They got a C or a D in their compliance rating, in their present readiness for Y2K. And these senators were simply saying, this is a serious problem. 
We don't want to panic you, but this is something we need to talk about. And by the way, they are talking in terms that will not raise panic because if they do that, they know that people will, will, will panic. Um, on the internet, you can find a whole lot of resource information on Y2K. There's quite a bit out there. We're not talking about something here that is just an imaginary problem. Our world is facing a crisis. But we know that. We know that the crisis is coming upon God's people and that these kind of things will precipitate it. That should not surprise us. Now we come to the economic problems. I don't know if you have been following the, the news reports in the recent weeks, but you know, of course, that the Asian economy has been severely damaged in the crisis of the Asian uh, Asian stock markets and the Asian economies. It was triggered by Thailand, who devalued its spot, but there, have, there has been a ripple effect all throughout Asia, and it did not affect the rest of us for some time, but recently it began to affect us, because it's starting to affect a lot of the balance of things going on economically between countries. I'm just going to show you a couple of news head headlines. Worldwide woes weigh on the dollar. Now, this is an American newspaper, so you understand. But it's weighing on the, Ger on the German mark and also on the British pound as well. I can tell you that. Here's one, a stash of cash for Y2K. You see, they already predict that in the year 1999, there is going to be a run on the banks for money, for cash. They know this. And so the Federal Reserve is putting an extra third of cash into the system. Right now, the banks are, I mean, the, um, the, the mint is printing money as fast as they can. And by the way, they're doing it in larger denominations because they they're expecting inflationary or deflationary um, uh, effect to take place very soon. So they're printing in larger denominations, 20s, 50s, $100 bills, and so on. And they're putting these into the banks ready for people to try to come and get it. Not only that, they're, they're going to leave, this article explains how they're going to leave older bills in circulation longer. You know, they take them out after they get after a few hands go through them because they don't, they're no longer any good. The banks pull these out. But they're going to leave them in longer, in circulation, because they just need more cash out in circulation. That, by the way, was August 20. Here's a headline from the stock market in New York. In fact, um, our stock market went down... 1,500 points over since July 17. Now it's back up again, about um, 500 points. It's up to 8,500 again. But it's been going up and down. I watch it every day almost because I like to see what's going on and watch the trend. And it's just been going up and down, up and down. Very strong. This one says, buy, sell, or t sit tight. 
and it's talking about investment strategy and what, you know, what to think of this market and its very gloomy picture. The instability is going to remain around a while because the, the interdependence of global economies. Here's another one from Business Magazine called Global Capitalism R.I.P. You know what that means? Rest in peace. That's meaning, is global capitalism dead? And uh, it's again talking about the economy, but it's also talking about the free markets and how that this is an opportune time for Marxist ideology to uh, gain a footing. And if you've been paying attention to Bill Clinton and the American uh, decisions and leadership, you know that we basically have a socialist government. Oh, we may not feel like we have a socialist government yet. But in the past eight years, we have had a significant loss of our religious, not our religious liberties, but our civil liberties, or at least the potential loss. The laws are in place to remove them at a moment's notice. Uh, hmm. uh, here's the report I told you about that uh, so-and-so released a Y2K grade. The executive branch merits an overall D. That's an improvement from the F they earned in June. Okay, so anyway, they're working on this matter, but there's no way that they can actually solve the problem. Now here is, here is an article from, I think it's Time Magazine, yes, Time Magazine, called What a Drag, Asia, Russia, and Latin America, Trouble Abroad Threatens the U.S. Economy. It's threatening your economy too. I'm reading you the newspaper stuff from America. But I can tell you that when you read your newspapers here, you have the same kind of thing. Tech stock anxiety drops NASDAQ. That's um, one of the stock markets. IMF meeting full of gloom. You know what IMF is? That's the International Monetary Fund. Full of gloom about the future. These are the people that are trying to underwrite and fund this this uh, collapsing economies in Asia and in South America and in Russia. Close to the brink, a bailout of big hedge fund rattles the investors. Everywhere there's anxiety about what's going on. What a time for God to work, folks. What a time for God to work. You can... Take this opportunity now to talk to people about their souls. Anxiety creeping into Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley's optimism turns to anxiety. Here's a magazine that's talking about the airlines and uh, getting ready for the millennium. Y2K. It goes on and on and on constantly. There's a lot of stuff coming out on this Y2K issue. But that's not all that tells us that Jesus' coming is near. There's a lot of other things that I said earlier have been converging together all at once. You may have noticed that the Bible tells us that in, in Joel chapter 2, turn with me there if you will. What does it say in Joel? 
In verse 30 of Joel chapter 2, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens, earth, and in the, and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord shall come. Think about this. What are pillars of smoke? I'm not here to speculate and, and, and all that, but Jesus tells us in Matthew 24. Let's turn there for a minute. Matthew 24. Jesus says, when they asked him about the signs of, of the coming of the Lord, in verse 6, he says, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in diverse places. Folks, the increase in storm, flood, tidal wave, um, hurricanes, tornadoes, and we think that we're on the verge of peace, and we still have wars in this part of the country, and that part of the country, and other parts of the country. This is all a sign of the end of time. And here's another one. Businesses have become increasingly concerned about a problem in the heavens that's going to disrupt their cash flow. Imagine that. What can happen up in heaven that's going to interrupt the cash flow on earth? Well, this next month, there is to be a meteor shower that's going to disrupt, a, a, potentially disrupt, significant communication satellites. Now what's going to happen? Just a few weeks ago, at least in our country, there was a, a, a breakdown of one of the satellites in which... Large communication systems were disrupted. People could not use their cell phones. How many of you have cell phones? Yes, of course. They couldn't use their cell phones because the, the satellite had been gotten skewered. One meteor the size of a grain of sand can cruise into a satellite and put a hole in it the size of a 22 bullet. I can tell you that will disrupt... A satellite. And then a year from now, we have another meteor shower coming. And so businesses that are involved in telecommunications are very concerned about the satellite systems. Now, a hundred years ago, that would have never been a problem. But now it's a big problem. Guess what? Your cable TV might not work. Well, maybe you don't have cable TV. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> or satellite TV. Because, you know, a lot of that, either cable or satellite, it, it still worked with the satellite. Um, what are you going to do if you can't get your cable? All right, no. Let me put it another way. What are all those people in London going to do and in other parts of it, England and Britain? 
when they can't get their cable. They'll have to go cold turkey off the addiction to television. <laughs> that would be a dramatic thing, wouldn't it? Then there's something else happening in the economy. Let's come back to the economy for a second. How about the euro dollar? Why, of all things, would the European community want to implement the principles of the euro dollar at a time when their computers are about to be disrupted? There's a reason behind it. There's an agenda, I believe. Now, maybe I am going off on a limb here, and I'm not wanting to say things that I probably can't support with documented information. I better just keep it to that. But I think that there is uh, a reason behind it, and there will certainly be those who will take advantage of the disruption of your lifestyle and mine. The new world government, the world government, is very anxious to increase its power without raising any opposition among the people. And there will be, when there is a crisis, they're more likely to do that. You understand what I'm talking about. By the way, I just on Thursday, was it Thursday? No, it was Wednesday of this past week. I went to a conference in Charlottesville, which is not far from us, talking about the International Court, the International Criminal Court, which was established in July in Rome. Why Rome? Well, that's a big question in my mind. But nevertheless, that's where the meeting was held. And already this international criminal court has freedom to prosecute individuals for the following crimes. Genocide. You remember the genocide treaties from a while back? How that those genocide treaties are designed so that... Um, a person, a citizen of Britain can be tried in a, for crimes of, of um, let me see, how do they put that? Any action which causes serious bodily or mental harm to any national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. That's... That's in the definition of genocide for which the International Criminal Court can try a person. And by the way, they can try someone from any country as soon as they gain the authority and the power to do so. And the United States of America has not signed it yet. They have 58 signatures, what I understand. All they need is 60. And they claim... Now that's an arbitrary figure that was chosen by the, the body that set this up so they have no basis, a rational basis for 60 countries. Why not all 150 or 160 countries in the world sign it before it becomes effective? I don't know. But they chose 60. And once they reach 60 signatures, they will then be saying that they have authority, even in those countries that have not signed on to it, to prosecute their own citizens under the International Criminal Court of Law. That's, of course, if they can get them to extradite them. And if there's... If there is any serious opposition to it, you know, the United Nations can manipulate things and push on them, and, and in the end, uh, they can put a lot of pressure in the equation. Another thing for which you can be tried 
in this international criminal court is crimes against humanity. Now, what is a crime against humanity? Part of the discussion and a lot of the problem in Rome of the opposition groups was in the wording, how vague the wording is. If you can't precisely nail it down in legal terms, then how can you, you know, it can be construed to mean anything. And by the way, crimes against humanity includes persecution of any group on racial, religious, ethnic, or gender basis. Gender. Now that's a homosexual argument if I ever heard one. Any identifiable group or activity is included in this meaning or definition of group. If you can identify a group of people and they're being persecuted, now you might think, well, that saves us a lot of trouble. Oh, no, it doesn't. Not at all. Because it's arbitrary. They can choose whom to prosecute and whom to not prosecute. Um, they use the term in order to protect. But really what it means is order to persecute. Another thing for which you can be tried in this court is to willfully causing bodily harm. It's war crimes. Willfully causing bodily harm. And that includes damage to the national natural environment as well. Damage to property. You can be tried. If you go and, and, and do something that's considered to be an environmental crime, you can be tried before the International Criminal Court. Anyway, I can go on and on about that. The issue at stake is what about your stewardship of your resources in the time of crisis that is converging upon God's people? Well, what resources do you have? You have quite a number of resources. Jesus has given you a powerful resource. And that powerful resource is the truth. The opportunity for God's people to spread the truth is going to be greater than it ever has been in history. Your opportunities are just before you. Get ready for it. So your first and primary and most important preparedness and stewardship responsibility in getting ready for the Y2K problem and all the other issues that are converging at that same general time is to get into your Bible and know the truth of God for yourself. How come I only heard one amen? amen? I tell you folks, this is serious business. We're right there. We're at the end of time. Now, another resource that you have is your time. Your energy. What are you going to do with your time? You have a stewardship responsibility with your time. God calls you to be a witness. A help to His cause. And we are, when you are under the control of the Holy Spirit, He gives you opportunity after opportunity to witness to people. Develop your agenda now. Understand your vision now. 
so that you can use your energy and your time properly when the time comes. If you end up in some prison, you'll know what to do. Start witnessing to the prisoners. But you've got to be ready for it. If you end up in some kind of place where you're unfamiliar, just start sharing your faith. God is giving you a warning so you can get ready to share your faith in that time by beginning now to share your faith. You can hand out literature now. The time is coming, and I'm glad to see a lot of little um, printing operations getting started here, there, and everywhere. And uh, to me, it's really important because if you have a printing press in your basement, you can do a lot of work. And nobody will know where this stuff is coming from. <laughs> you see? If you're dependent upon society for some of these things, to job it out here and there and everywhere, you may not be able to do what you need to do. Because they may not accept your job. Because it could be dangerous for them to do so. I could tell you about the Inquisition and the time won't permit, but uh, we're going to have very similar circumstances for the um, unacceptable people, meaning Seventh-day Adventists, in this time of crisis that is coming upon the world. What other stewardship responsibilities do you have? There are some other things that we should uh, mention. Uh, often when we talk about stewardship, we think of finance. <laughs> and of course, that is very important. And getting ready for Y2K is one thing that you may need to think about, especially if you live in a city. You may want to be sure that you have a secure water supply, independent of the city. Maybe bottled water, maybe, maybe if you're fortunate to have your own well, you might have that uh, available to you. Um, what about food resources? Now, I'm going to read you some Spirit of Prophecy statements in a moment. I'm going to read you some Spirit of Prophecy statements in a moment that will help you to understand what it is we're talking about. Because I believe that we have to be balanced and we must be careful. There are some who... who... Um, are hesitant to do anything about Y2K. But Y2K and the time of trouble are two separate things, two separate times. All right? And Y2K and the, and the crisis leading up to the law, the Sunday law, which prevents you from buying and selling, is a different matter from the time of trouble. Now, God gives us some counsel in His Word. And I want to just share with you a couple of statements if I can wake up my computer. Good, looks like it's going to wake up. These statements are important for us to remember. There's one statement where she talks about not, um, not um, making provisions for the time of trouble. Peter Gregory was talking about the time of trouble a little earlier. And this is from a broadside. Um, looks like 1849, January 31. For two years past, 
The Lord has shown me in vision repeatedly that it is contrary to the Bible to make any provision for our temporal wants in the time of trouble. Now we have to be careful and understand this statement. I saw that if the saints have food laid up by them or in the fields in the time of trouble, when sword, famine, and pestilence are in the land, it will take, be taken from them by violent hands and strangers would reap their fields. Then, while, then will be the time for us to trust wholly in God. Then, the time of trouble, is the time for us to trust wholly in God and He will sustain us. I saw that our bread and water would be sure at that time and that we should not lack or suffer hunger. The Lord has shown me that some of His children would fear when they see the price of food rising. And what does that tell you about the price of food? It's going to rise. That's right. The price of food is going to rise. So they're going to fear that when they see that food prices are rising, they're going to buy food and lay it by for the time of trouble. Then in a time of need, I saw them go to their food and look at it. It had bred worms and was full of living creatures and not fit for use. About one week since, the Lord showed me in vision that houses and lands would be of no use in the time of trouble, and in that time they would not be, they could not be disposed of. I saw it was the will of God the saints should cut loose from every encumbrance, every encumbrance, <coughs> dispose of their houses and lands before the time of trouble comes, and make a covenant with God by sacrifice. I saw they would, if they would sell. I, I saw they would sell if they had laid their property on the altar and earnestly inquired for duty. Then God will teach them when to dispose of these things. Then they will be free in the time of trouble and have no clogs to weigh them down. Now that's talking about the time of trouble. Now let's look at this statement. Oh, but that's a broadside, uh, January, uh, yeah, January 31, 1849. Now we have Adventist home. Another statement. This one sounds almost... A little contrary, doesn't it? But we'll, we're going to talk about how to reconcile the two. Again and again, she says, the Lord has showed me in page 141 of Adventist Home. The Lord has instructed that our people are to take their families away from the cities into the country where they can raise their own provisions. For in the future, the problem of buying and selling will be a very serious one. We should now begin to heed the instruction given us over and over again. Get out of the cities to rural districts where the houses are not crowded closely together, where you will be free from the interference of enemies. Now, how do we reconcile these two statements? Where you can grow your own provisions. Well, that's obvious. You know, go where you can grow something, and uh, you'll have food. In one place, she refers to eating like kings and queens. But how do you reconcile this in terms of provisions? You see... Ellen White was writing in a time when the basis of society was agrarian. What does that mean, agrarian? That means agricultural. And it was a very common thing to grow food, store it up for the year, until you can grow that food again. And that's how they survived. That's how an agrarian society has always survived. And she was writing this to an agrarian society, but also she's writing it to us. I think it's important for us to realize that if we are to 
become, once again, an agrarian society, then there will be times when we have to uh, store up a certain amount of provision, but not a long storage. You see, if you have a long storage, you're talking about like something the Mormons might be doing, a five-year supply of food. But that's not what God instructs us. In fact, God tells us we should not do that. We read that earlier, especially in terms of the time of trouble. The Bible says that the prudent man seeth the trouble. Uh, Let's see if we can find it. It's in Proverbs. I'm not sure I can find it that quickly. Anyway, she says that the prudent... Yeah, chapter 22 of Proverbs, verse 3, says, A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. So it's time to pay attention. God has given us counsel to get out in the country. This is a good time to do it. I don't think we have a whole lot of time. And some of us may have more difficulty than others. But if we ask God for his guidance, he will provide. And there are, in Britain, I know that that it's not like America where... There's a lot of open space and that you don't have a lot of freedom to to build new houses and homes out in the countryside. But God will provide resources if you ask Him how to to do that. He may move you to a small town, a small village, maybe like Gaisley or something. But your financial resources at this time are God's. And they have always been God's, but we haven't always used them as God would have us use them. We need to be very thoughtful and in earnest prayer about how God wants us to use our own personal resources in preparation and in stewardship in in the crisis that is coming before God's people. Well, there are other forms of stewardship. There are... Um, houses and lands and we've just read a statement about what Ellen White said we should do there comes a time when we need to sell these things now we may also need to think about ways in which we can use those things that, that we have in order to be a blessing to others and I know that God has a purpose for each of us in using the resources that he has placed in our control. He gives us the responsibility for these things. And I know that we're out of time, so I need to conclude. But I want to share that in the next few months, the next 12 months, by the way, the Y2K problem does not begin January 1, the year 2000. It begins well before that. Some countries start their fiscal year April 1, 1999, of the fiscal year 2000. Other countries start it uh, July 1. United States starts it October 1. Or is it October 30? I don't remember exactly. But it, we will begin to see some of the challenges that are going to be faced in a phasing in over time. But not only that, I, I was reading an article... Uh, there's, a, there's a spirit of prophecy statement where she says that money is going to deflate very quickly. 
or devalue, I think is the word she uses. Very quick devaluation of money. Um, that is going to be the time when it may be too late to use your money in the cause of God. Whatever you can, by sacrifice, by, as she put it, a covenant of sacrifice with God, put your resources into the work of God. Get out literature. Do what you can in every way to bring about God's desire and His will for your life. If, and I know that some of you may agree or disagree with some of the things I've shared, but I want you to think about these things and start praying about them and study what God would have you do in preparation for the human crisis that is to come. We have a marvelous opportunity and a great uh, resource in the hands of God's people. And I want to urge us to all consecrate our lives and get ourselves ready for that which is coming. Now is the time. Can't do it later. Now is the time to overcome sin. Now is the time to consecrate ourselves. May God bless you and help us each one to be faithful.